0: When we rejoice, whatever it is that's causing our, our, our heart to, to just swim and swirl with that, that feeling, where our, our shoulders, instead of being slumped forward, go back and our faces light up. When, when we rejoice, we're actually following a command of Scripture. And it's a command that comes as a repeated refrain throughout the Bible. Paul writes to the church at Philippi. We've been studying the little book of Philippi as part of this series. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Furthermore, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Not a suggestion, it's a command. And he goes on to say, It's no trouble for me to write you this same thing again and again and again, because it's a safeguard for you. Rejoice in the Lord. He says it again in chapter 4, in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it, rejoice. And it's not just Philippi that had a joy problem. He he writes it to lots of churches. For example, to the church in Thessalonica. He says in chapter 5, verse 18, rejoice from time to time. No, he, he says, rejoice always. Whatever you're doing in whatever circumstance, because you remember we said joy, as opposed to happiness, isn't circumstance dependent. Joy doesn't depend on your circumstances. Joy is above your circumstances because joy is rooted in God, who is above the circumstances of your life. Now, that sounds great as a Sunday morning conversation, and uh, and sometimes it fits here, but There are mornings, are there not, when you wake up and it's gloomy. I mean, it's gloomy outside, but more importantly, it's gloomy inside. Yesterday was a disaster. Today doesn't feel like it's going to be any better. Uh, Instead of joy, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's dread, self-loathing, whatever it is. What do I have to be joyful about today? Pastor, I mean, what? What's the source of joy in moments like that? Let me give you a couple of things as a starting point, and, and then let's see where we land. Maybe you want to try this. Maybe before your feet hit the floor as you get out of bed, you might just want to think about the circumstances of your life. And I don't mean your work life or your school life or your home address. I mean the circumstances of all life. You might want to remember that at one moment, one central moment in the history of the universe, heaven came down to earth and became just a little bit like us, a human being in flesh. You might want to remember that, that during the days that Jesus was here, he modeled a life that was infused with purpose and meaning and joy. And it was meant to be imitated, meant to be followed. You might want to remember that that life that was modeled around the theme of love ended in the most unanticipated and unmatched gesture of sacrificial love that the world had ever seen as Jesus dies. And he says, this is an intentional act, and it's for you. You might want to remember that death is never death where God is concerned, that he rose in victory triumphant over the grave. And that says something not only about him, but says something about what you can anticipate for you. You might want to remember that you've been adopted into this enormous family of people who are marked and characterized by the joy of the Lord. You might remember that the spirit of God, the living presence of the eternal creator of all things is embedded in you, in your life. You might remember that you've been given a purpose, meaning, significance, and it doesn't end at the end of your human days. It stretches on into all eternity. You have an identity that can never be threatened, can never be taken, and you have a hope that will be with you as long as you live here on earth and then stretches out for all eternity beyond that. And that's great reason for joy. But if that's not enough, let me give you this one too. When you're a joyful person, you wind up giving something to everyone else around you, and this is the sort of the, the point that I want to land on as we begin today. Your joy is not just about you in, in fact it 's not even primarily about you. when we 're joyful, it enhances the lives of everyone whose world We inhabit And there's lots of research about this. We know, for example, that joyful people are more compassionate in their actions than those who are less joyful. We know that they tend to be much more generous financially. We know that they develop friendships that run deeper and are more sustainable than those who are joy impaired. We know they're much more likely to stay married. They're much more resilient in the face of hardship. We even know that they thrive much more in the face of physical illness than those who are joy crippled. Nehemiah said it a long time ago. He said, the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? And and that's just true. Where where joy increases, goodness increases, virtue increases. And it's not just about me, it's about everyone. Think of it this way, where you work, and, and I don't mean what you do, but where you do it, you have an obligation to be joyful in the workplace. Now, maybe your job is just a job and you don't love it and it doesn't feel like God designed me for this. But whatever it is that you do, you have an obligation to be joyful because when you bring that into the workplace, it improves the lives of everybody around you. And here's the reason why, and this is the most telling reason, why your joy is not just about you. Unhappy Christians, joy-starved Christians, are a greater argument against Christianity than the strongest argument that atheists have ever mustered. Folks, people watch. You know this, right? They're watching all the time. They're particularly watching religion and religious people because we're suspicious of religion in our culture. And they're going to assume that if Christians are grumpy, judgmental, prejudicial, racist, just joy-starved people, then it's only for, for one of two reasons. Either the Jesus that they're following is that way, or they're following Jesus the wrong way. And most people will assume the further, the, the former. They, they see an unhappy Christian, and they'll assume that that's just what Christianity is. That's what the gospel does. Instead of bringing buoyancy into your life and a lightness in your step and, and and an unquenchable joy into your life, it it just slumps you forward and fills you with guilt and disdain for this wicked world. And joy is commanded. It's commanded repeatedly in the gospels. And one of the reasons is that that without followers who know that there is a spiritual and, and moral and biblical responsibility for being joyful. Without that, the whole mission of getting good news into the world gets compromised because people can never quite get past the messenger. They they trip over the messenger. And they think, I said, I, I don't want to have anything that they have because look what it did to them. It just shriveled them up inside. That's going to bring us to, to the primary point of this morning, and the one that we ended on last week, the, the rather shocking secret that joyful people have learned. You might not have guessed that. You won't find it in the research, because this isn't something that researchers spend a lot of time on, but we're going to find it in a section of Philippians. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in Philippians, we're in chapter 2 this week. Paul's writing to this little church in Philippi. We're going to start in the second chapter at the beginning. Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded, by having the same love, By being one in spirit and of one mind. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility. Circle that word. In humility. Value others above yourself. Don't look to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I'm going to stop there. We'll read onward in a minute. I I don't think there's any way that I'm going to be able to to emphasize how radical that set of words was for people who lived in Philippi. These were game changers. There had been nothing written or even suggested that came remotely close to what Paul is getting at here. And and, and in order to understand that, you need to understand just a little bit about what life was like in Philippi. Philippi was one of the crown jewels of the Roman Empire. This is a Roman colony. And the Roman Empire was the most status-conscious region of the ancient world. It might be the most status-conscious society in all history. Every society has things that they value. Some value family above all else. Others will value the accumulation of of possessions. Others just of of monetary wealth. Uh, The primary currency in ancient Rome, Rome was, not, was not physical, material wealth. It was not possessions, wasn't even family. The primary currency is honor. Honor was the trade and stock of the Roman Empire. It is the most status-oriented culture in the world. One of their primary thinkers, Cicero, said, By nature, we yearn and we hunger for honor. And once we have glimpsed its radiance, There's nothing that we are not prepared to bear or suffer in order to secure it. The secret of life in Philippi can be summed up in one word. Advance yourself. Promote yourself. Serve yourself. Do it publicly. Because you need to be seen. And society was divided up pretty clearly into all of these different rungs on the ladder. Or classes, if you would like. The basic division in Rome was between the elite and the non-elite. And it wasn't a 50-50 split. In fact, only about 2% of the people who lived in the Roman Empire were considered to be part of the elites. The rest, the 98%, are just the masses. At the very bottom of the masses was a group who, well, they were the slaves. They had no honor. It didn't mean that they had no possessions or no family or or no money, but they had no honor. And with no honor, that put them at the very bottom of the pile. Above the slaves were a group that were called the freed men or the freed women. Now, maybe they're not elite, but they're not slaves. So they're a little bit higher on the honor scale. And they have some rights, not nearly as many rights as others, but they're up the ladder just a little bit. Some of you have come from, from very status and class-oriented cultures, So you kind of get what this is like. Above them, the next category, they're, they're still parts of the, of the non-elite. So they're still in that 98%. But you had the slaves and you had the freedmen. And above them are the citizens. These are the citizens of Rome. And this is not a, a huge group but it is much more sizable than that that little 2% band at the top to be a citizen of rome meant it meant that you had certain rights certain privileges but most importantly it meant that you were not them i'm not a slave i'm not just a freedman i'm a citizen it, it meant something it had honor and then you move to that top little band the 2% and even among that little band as you widen it out, there were stratifications at the very bottom of the band, there's a group that's called, and you find this kind of funny. they were called equestrians. ever wonder where the word came from? That's where it comes from. What's an equestrian? yeah, somebody to do with. So an equestrian, somebody is the bottom band of the elites. They're in the upper two percent of the empire, but they are distinguished through their honor by the ability to own and use a horse. That doesn't just mean that they had the money to buy it. Lots of people might have the money to buy it, but in addition to being able to afford it, they were allowed to ride it in public procession and ride it into battle. It was a statement of honor, not just of ownership. So you, you have the equestrians. Even smaller, but above the equestrians, is a group of senators. I mean, you're dealing with the elite of the elite, members of the Roman Senate. And when you get to the very top of the whole pile, there's room for only one, the ruler who's bore the title Caesar, Caesar. And everything about life in in ancient Rome, life in Philippi, was meant to reinforce your position on the ladder and to stimulate the desire inside to move up. For example, the clothes that people wore were entirely about your status. If you were a freed man, you got to wear a special hat. It had a very specific technical name. It was called, are you ready? The Freedman's hat. <laughs> and when you, when you wore it, it was your way of saying, listen, I may not be Caesar, but I'm not one of those. And everywhere you went in public you would wear the freedman's hat as a way of saying, I'm a rung up the ladder. But if you went even further up, if you were a citizen of Rome, you got to wear in public a toga. (laughs) You thought they were just for frat parties, right? They're, They're cumbersome. They're hard to wear. You didn't wear it because it was comfortable. You wore it because it was about status. It was an honor thing. You wore it to say, I'm not them. I'm not in that lousy cap, I'm not wearing just anything at all, I'm a citizen, I'm in a toga. As you move up the ladder again, the equestrians, in addition to being able to use a horse publicly, they got to wear a gold ring. Again, very public way of saying not, I'm married, but I'm not them, I'm this far up the ladder. There's a cryptic little saying, actually. It comes in in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the book of James, where it says in chapter 2, don't fawn all over a man who comes in your meeting wearing a gold ring and a toga. It's their way of saying, listen, don't buy into that status-driven world. Treat people as God would see them. If you go one level above the equestrians, you get to the senators. Uh, Not only do they get to wear a gold ring and a toga, but they get to wear a toga with a purple stripe on it. I mean, look at me. That is the ultimate fashion statement of the elite, the purple stripe. Uh, And it wasn't just your clothing, but the whole legal system was designed not so much to, to promote justice or prevent crime. It was designed... To preserve your place on the ladder. So depending on where you were on the ladder, you had rights and there were punishments that could be assigned to you. And they were very different. There was no equal rights. That didn't exist. That wasn't a concept. That actually is an outgrowth of, of the Christian mission to the world, that we should treat people as God sees them of worth and value. But Depending on where you were, you had different rights and different punishments. For example, if you were a citizen of Rome, you couldn't be flogged. A common punishment for those who were below on the ladder. Now why is that important? Well, you're reading through the book of Philippians. One of the things that happens when Paul is in Philippi is that he gets charged, he gets accused. And before they realize what's happening, he's sentenced to flogging. And he's taken out and he has that terrible punishment assigned to him. And then word gets out, oh no, he was a citizen of Rome. Boy, you could lose your job. You could lose your head for making that mistake. And, and Paul leverages that for the work of the gospel. The most dishonoring punishment of all of them in the entire arsenal that Rome could hurl at somebody was crucifixion. Now, The Romans are really good at capital punishment, right? They have all kinds of ways that they could use to kill a man, many different forms. But this was the most dishonoring, disgraceful form of death. It was reserved only for traitors, and it could only be given to those who were members of that bottom rung group, only to slaves. For that reason, I mean, a punishment that's designed not just to to kill, but to humiliate, for that reason, there was a technical phrase that was used to describe it. They didn't call it crucifixion. They called it literally the slave's punishment. And that word, slave's punishment, was considered so vile that you wouldn't speak it. It was a curse word. In polite conversation, you would never use that expression. When they were seated at public events, again, this is all about reinforcing honor and and status. I was trying to think of the best analogy. And the one I came up with was, it's kind of like flying, like airline travel. If you're going on a flight, and if you have the really good seats, we say you are flying first class, right? We actually use class language. You're not second class. You're not economy. You're not coach. You're not back there with all the rabble, right? And they actually hang a little curtain between you and the rest. So, they don't get to look in the in the Holy of Holies where the first class people get to sit. And, and airlines will actually assign you status. And they'll give great names for it premier class, platinum class, pearl class, diamond, cubic zirconium, <laughs> linoleum, the, the whole, all these amazing words that are designed to make you crave and hold on to status. And they do things to reinforce that hunger for status. Higher class passengers get to board the plane first, and the rest of us just kind of look on and say, oh, okay. And some genius in marketing thought, well, this is a great idea. Before the first class passengers start to board, we'll take a little red carpet and we'll roll it out on the, uh, on the little expressway there, and, and they'll walk across on a red carpet because they're first class. And then when they're all across, we'll roll it back up again. And everybody else has to walk across on just normal airport carpet. That's nothing to do with improving the experience. It's about reinforcing class. How ashamed we will all feel. I had to walk on gray carpet. In Philippi, if you went to a public event, Any event, athletic contest, theater, seating was arranged not by ticket price, but by status. The Senators, Dave, are in the front row. There you are, Senator Dave. And then next were the equestrians and so on. It was illegal, if you were a citizen, to sneak up and sit in a section reserved for the elite. Get in big trouble for that. In Rome, succeeding was only succeeding if it was done publicly. You needed to be seen. Honor is a public thing. Your worth, your status only exists if it's existing in somebody else's eyes. So, one historian says, for example, in Rome, being is being seen. Get a sense for it now? It's important to understand that to, to get ready for what comes next. In that world, sometimes people would lose status. It could be because of their behavior. Often it was because of the loss of a family's wealth. But you could actually forfeit your status and go down the ladder a little bit. That was terrible. In fact, in the Roman world, where Philippi was a part The loss of elite status was the most crippling blow that could ever be dealt to a human being. And they had a name for it, a specific name. A word very familiar in English, but very specific in their world. Here's the background for it. When you lose your status in that world, here's the word. You're being humbled. Being humbled was always a disaster. It was a catastrophe. It was never, never, never identified as a virtue. It was not a good thing. It was the worst of all possible outcomes. And when it happened, well, one of the writers, Pliny, said, it is more uglifying. What a great word, eh? It is more uglifying to lose praise, to go down, than never to have been praised at all. This is life in Rome. This is life in Philippi. Interestingly, in our records, we have more inscriptions. We have have more ceramics. We have more parchment centered around all of these titles and the race for honor. We have more of that in Philippi than anywhere else in the world. And Jesus is about to mess with Philippi. And and as we listen in, I think he's going to mess with the GTA a little bit. So let's listen in. Chapter 2 of Philippians, again, we're in verses 6 and 7. In your relationships with one another, this is Paul writing, he Says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, top of the ladder, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. Paul's using really loaded language here, and everybody knew it. That title, In Nature God is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the visible manifestation of the glory of God. In other words, Christ is clothed in God's glory. He's clothed in majesty. He's clothed in splendor. But he didn't consider it something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he did the unthinkable. He disadvantaged himself for the sake of others. In your relationships with one another, let's read on have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He's not going up the ladder. Instead, verse 7, he humbled himself. There's that word. He made himself nothing. and He took the very nature of a servant being found in human likeness. With Jesus, there was no divine splendor, no purple stripe, no white toga, no golden ring, no freedman's cap. The Bible actually and quite deliberately uses this word to describe him slave. He's gone from the highest position, the top of the ladder, to the lowest position. He has volunteered for the ultimate downgrade from Lord of all to slave of all. And he doesn't stop there. Paul goes on, verse 8. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself. Again, in ancient Rome, sometimes people were humbled. Nobody voluntarily humbled themselves. Jesus humbled himself. He took the downgrade. He says he humbled himself and he became obedient. Again, striking word. Romans hated the word word obedience. Obedience was a word for children. Obedience was a slave word, a word of weakness. None of them would choose the word obedient to describe themselves. He became obedient unto death. Slave, obedient unto death, not just death, ends with this description. Obedient to death, even the slave's death, even crucifixion. That's as low as you could go. This is the ultimate humiliation, the lowest status on the planet. The Lord of all has become a crucified slave. By the way, if you've been with us, you know we've been talking about the difference between the happy life and the meaningful life. Which do you think that Jesus chose? Happy life, meaningful life. He chose meaning. And now we begin to understand why. Everyone in Philippi, anyone in Rome, would look at the story, would read these words about Jesus, and would be filled with, at best, confusion, but probably scorn and contempt. Are you kidding me? He went down, and he did it on purpose, and you admire him? That's ridiculous. It's why Paul talks again and again about the folly of the gospel. It's foolishness, he says. It's a loser strategy. Nobody does that in Rome. Rome is wrong. And Paul's going to show how wrong Rome was. Let's read on. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, don't you love therefores when they come in scripture? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that ranks above all other names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the first act, it's Jesus who's doing the work, and it's the work of humiliation. In the second act, it's God who's doing the vindicating work. And because in Rome, everything of importance is public, this is going to be the most public gesture of God's work in the life of Jesus the world ever knows. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess one day it's going to be that public. Every knee, Caesar isn't going to be Lord after all. <laughs> and the ladder that is so important to you is going to be tipped completely upside down. The kingdom of God is, is exactly that. It's, it's upside down. It's this new reality that breaks into Rome or Philippi or the GTA where we realize that the servants are the great ones. And that, at long last, after you've been patient for these 20 minutes, is the shocking secret that joyful people have learned. That the road really to joy is not about advancement, not advancement of yourself or indulging yourself, but by dying to yourself. Jesus comes into the world with the oddest of all imaginable recruitment slogans. Can you imagine trying to use this to start a movement? Take up your cross and follow me. I mean, who builds a movement like that? Who recruits people like that? We, we repeat, recruit people with who are looking for the, the few, the proud, the brave. Be all you can be. But no, not, not Jesus. You want to follow me? Deny yourself take up your cross, die to sin, follow me. In humility, learn to value other people. Seek the advancement of other people more than the advancement of yourself. Take up your cross. And as you deny that sinful, idol worshiping fearful, petty, small-minded, me-first part of yourself, as you just die to that, Allow God to give birth to a nobler, better you. The shocking secret that followers of Jesus have learned is that joy comes not through indulging my sinful self, but by dying to it. Have you done that? Will you do that? Flip back for a second to the very beginning of the book of Philippians. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, he says, from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm the slave of a slave. In fact, I'm the slave of a crucified slave. Not just that, Paul would write it in another place, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm the crucified slave of a crucified slave. How low can you go? But Jesus comes into you with all those demanding, frightening, joy-bringing words. Take up your cross. Listen, I I know. I I know that this probably raises more questions than it answers. You mean that I need to voluntarily start sacrificing a lot of stuff? You you mean I I ought to put limits on, on how much that I can accumulate? You mean I... I should deliberately maybe fail to achieve some of the things I could achieve if it means others around me can flourish? Does it mean I have to forego some of the comfort and security and pleasure that I'm completely able to afford on my own and just give it away to those who don't deserve it? Do you mean I, I deliberately need to humble myself, confess my flaws instead of veneering over them, admit my guilt, talk to somebody even when I didn't get caught? Do you really mean I need to get on my knees daily and confess my dependency, my insufficiency to a God whose mercy I don't deserve? And yeah, that's exactly what I mean. God knows how hard it is for us. That's why Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. Sometimes people think, that the crucifixion is Jesus dying so we don't have to die. That's not exactly right. Actually, it's Jesus crucified so that part of us would die with him. Take up your cross. Let that die. People go to church, Boy, uh, sometimes months, sometimes years. They listen to messages, but they never get serious around this question. Will you die to yourself? Will you take up your cross? Will you you die to sin as best you can? As God helps you. Being fully devoted to him. Have you done that? And I guess as we think about baptism, the bigger question is, have you Have you taken that step that should precede it? And if you haven't, maybe a question you want to think about a little bit during the the waning hours of the day today is, has climbing that ladder gotten you everything that you wanted? Maybe you got the job or the house or the salary that success that relationship that that pleasure has it really satisfied your soul i, I just I, I don't know how else to say it if you have to keep climbing the ladder go ahead get it out of your system but but you will find that when you get to the top joy is not one of the things that's there waiting for you and if you're ready to fully surrender your life then this is the moment. And this is God's call for us. The invitation of Jesus that that moves us from saying, my will, my way, my reputation, my time, my money, through that filter of take up your cross, to your will, your purposes, your kingdom come, and let it come in my life. I'd like to invite you to pray with me. Bow your head for a moment and close your eyes. I don't know what taking up the cross means for you today. But maybe in this moment, just in the best way that you can, as sincere as you can be, you feel fully surrendered to Jesus. And you just resonate with this whole thing and you want to say, God, you know that's my desire. God, help me More and more. To be fully surrendered to you. Maybe that's not you though. Maybe if you're honest. You think I've been holding something back. Maybe there's something that just sticks in your throat. When you even hear those words. Deny yourself. And what you need to say to God right now. Is simply this. God I. I'm going to need your help here. Because it's. It's hard for me. I know there's something stuck in me. There's sin I need to die to. And I'm afraid. There's anger or bitterness inside me. There's this drivenness. And I don't understand it. Can you allow room for Jesus. To say to you right now. I know. Just trust me in this. Just. Take up your cross and follow me. Heavenly Father, we all ask for your help in this. It's so hard for us. There are people here this morning who are at this big crossroad in their lives. Facing real decisions that need to be made this week. May this mind be in us that was also in Jesus. Would you help us take up our cross and follow the one that we love? Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.